your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint, the podcast variety show featuring positive achievements, inspiring positive actions. Part of my global mission is to inspire you to identify and act upon your own positive imprints. What's your PI? Well, a quick note from today's episode sponsor. Snoot spray, as seen on the Daily Buzz, keeps your nose and sinuses clear and is drug-free. Use snoot spray daily or for post-nasal drip and drainage from colds, flu, mold, and other nasty bugs, or during allergy season. Snoot spray just donated hundreds of dollars in product and overnighted it to Washington's epicenter of coronavirus, Redmond, Washington. Snoot Spray also donated their product to firefighters and the press in California during the recent fire in Pacific Palisades and their local frontline delivery teams at United States Postal Service, FedEx, and United Parcel Service. Products available and selling quickly from, on the website, snootspray.com. That's S-N-O-O-T-S-P-R-A-Y.com and Amazon. Snoot Nasal Cleanser is everything you want from a neti pot squeezed into a tiny little nasal sprayer. For a one-two punch, order its complimentary mouthwash and gargle dioxy rinse at www.frontierfarm.com. That's F-R-O-N-T-I-E-R P-H-A-R-M.com. Use discount code Perry Mason to get 20% off your first order. Well, as I stated in January, the World Health Organization has named 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. Well, it's a good time to thank our medical professionals worldwide. I know some of my listeners are nurses, and I'd like to mention a few of you. Thank you to Espen of Norway, working in the ER diligently. Carmen of United States works on the, in the oncology unit. Erlene in United States is an emergency response nurse. And Dr. Lorena is a medical practitioner practicing in Hong Kong. Will all of my listeners stay healthy, stay ahead of the curve? Well, a senior primary caregiver told me this week that our seniors are our history. Those are words that I really reflected on because I never really thought of it that way. But it is true. Our elders share stories of the past. One day, each of us will be an elder telling our stories, our history of our own positive imprints. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? Well, today's guest is an Air Force pilot vet, and he served in two wars, but he has amazing positive imprints of the past and of what he is doing even today. This is Catherine. Wasn't that a fabulous introduction coming from Milton Herman on the piano? He is 90 years old, and for heaven's sake, he has such a wonderful positive imprint, and as we know, he's part of the greatest generation, and he has 
the positive imprints that extend from, I'm sure, childhood, but into his military career. Milton, hello. It's so good to have you. Hi. And sitting here at the table, we have Mary Milton, who is his wife of how many years, Mary? 84. Well, no, no, no. That's how old you are. That's how old you are. I've been married all my life. We've been married, we've been married about 57 years. It was close. Well, congratulations on the 57. And then their daughter, Michelle. I am daughter number one, or the favorite daughter. You can say that, too. And Michelle and I have known each other for a number of years. We went to high school together. And something I never knew about your dad was... And your mom was their background. Of course, when we're in high school, we don't talk about those things. We have a lot better things to talk about in high school. (laughs) So you were born in 1929, and that happened to be an era of the Great Depression, as it was so named. What was it like growing up during that time period? And where did you grow up? I grew up in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which was right on the southwestern edge of uh, all that Dust Bowl stuff was going on then. But it didn't hardly impress me, and I didn't really know what was going on until years later when I read about it. To the north and northeast in Oklahoma, the Panhandle, it got so bad there that all of their prairie lands turned into just sand dunes. And we didn't have any of that in Las Vegas, so I really didn't know what was going on. So, yep, depression days, but again, I was taking care of fine, and I wasn't involved with finances or anything. I was just a little boy. (laughs) So I think I had a pretty normal growing up. Uh, I had a cousin living right next door to me, and he and I played together uh, almost continuously up to about six or seven years. So then after that, went to school, and I don't think that was much different than most people in the area. What were you involved in? Were you involved in any, like today we have so many curricular activities. Was that... Yeah, I went to Catholic school, and uh, they encouraged us to do things, which I went along with. I learned to play the clarinet because one of the nuns taught me that. I even gave a concert. I can't believe I did that. I was probably only (laughs) about 10 or 11 years old. I got up on the stage and played the clarinet. And they also organized for St. Patrick's Day and helped the kids make booths, and we would... uh, they made arrangements with the business people, and so we would sell candy or popsicles and that kind of stuff, so I learned a little bit of business. I can remember in the seventh grade, got to go to one of the nicer classrooms. <laughs> when I first started out, the teachers usually had, like, I was first and second grade, one teacher, all in one room, probably about 60 kids, 50 wow. kids. Wow. But that didn't seem to hurt too much. I had a pretty good grade school. I didn't live very far from school, so I used to walk to school. I marvel at my mom. Because when I entered uh, first grade, we were about eight or ten blocks from school, and she walked me to IC school, Immaculate Conception School, which was near the fire department, the first day. And then the second day, she asked me if I could do it by myself, and I said, sure, and I can remember doing that. went to eight blocks by myself. <laughs> I thought it was no sweat, but she must have really been worried. So the conversation at home was never, they, they never talked about finances. The only thing I remember is uh, I happened to be listening to the radio when the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December. I was listening to the radio in my grandparents' room and my folks, and I think maybe an aunt and uncle, six of them, they were playing cards in the kitchen. So when the announcement came over the attack on Pearl Harbor, what I went in and told them about it, they just sort of listened and we wasn't much we could do. And I don't remember doing much of anything. They went back to playing cards and I went back to listen to the radio. (laughs) Wow. And what was life like after that incident? Well, the war was going on, uh, and I remember my dad 
joined either a local guard or a state guard because I can remember him having a rifle and going out and and guarding the dam one night at Story Lake. And Story Lake, for the listeners, that happens to be the reservoir. That's the reservoir, which was for the farming in uh, northern Las Vegas, about five miles out of town. So that was important. If it had been destroyed, it would have caused a lot of trouble. So on that, and we did evident, uh, a couple of times put up blackout curtains, but not very often because we couldn't imagine anybody flying all the way to Las Vegas, New Mexico <laughs> to bomb us. So <laughs> I don't think we paid too much attention to that. What are blackout curtains? Yeah, blackout curtains. So what are blackout I grew up curtains? in New Jersey, 25 miles from New York City. So we had blackout curtains. They were like draperies. And before it was time to turn out lights in the house, covered all of the windows, all, the whole house, every window. And the idea was if there was an attack or Japanese or German planes flying overhead, they wouldn't be able to see anything. So everybody had blackout curtains. There were air raid wardens that went around to check. And if they caught you without using your blackout curtains, I don't know what the penalty was, but it was pretty severe. Everybody goes to the coastline had blackout curtains. Everybody did. And the businesses as well? Oh, everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. Sheltered too. Because a light in the dark is seen for a long way out. Everybody had it. And now Las Vegas, New Mexico, the the railroad, that was at one time a pretty important hub over there. And I can remember the regular steam engines uh, coming through there because I used to deliver papers and run all around that downtown because the town's only two or three or four blocks long anyway that and then right as the war was ending they switched to the diesel while it was going on there were a lot of trains through las vegas with troops and materials and that kind of stuff i still remember quite a bit of that Mm. there were a (laughs) lot of trains everywhere because that was really pre-airlines there were airlines but not not commercial airline activity like there is now so everything ran on trains and so there was always a concern of them being attacked since we were also uh, about 10 or 15 miles from Picatinny, which was a major arsenal. And so there was always a concern. And of all things, Picatinny. later on, that's where her folks arranged for that's our we, uh, Our wedding, wedding reception was. Oh. <laughs> they, had a golf course. they had a golf course there. Not appropriate. Uh, <laughs> my dad knew somebody and got access to using the club at Picatinny. Yeah. Yeah. Picatinny's still there, still a major arsenal. Mm-hmm. So how did you meet? Dorian? Well... Oh, look at the smile on his face. I had an uncle that had a friend named Condon, who his dad was in the coal business. He had gone to school in Chicago. And as that war was going on, I learned from my uncle, David, found out from his uh, friend Condon going to school in Chicago that he had met a girl that was born in Brooklyn, and he got married to her. And I can remember either thinking or telling my uncle, Brooklyn, what a no. How did he ever meet a girl from Brooklyn? I'll never marry a girl from Brooklyn. So then we meet in Phoenix. She's born in Brooklyn, and we got married. So I married a girl from Brooklyn. I was working for a little local service airline, which doesn't exist anymore. It just went down the tubes a few years ago. And it had a flight that came through. Oh, God, it left Phoenix at 7.40 in the morning. It went to Yuma, El Centro, San Diego, Santa Ana, 
Los Angeles, stayed there for a little while, went to Riverside, Palm Springs, Las Vegas, stayed there for a couple hours, to Kingman, to Prescott, to Phoenix at 7.50 at night. It was gone 12 hours and 10 wow. minutes. It was a killer <laughs> up and down, you know. Airlines, and they still now do their the crews bid according to seniority. And that was a killer. So nobody wanted it. And so I bid a full schedule of that flight, which was 12 flights. Couldn't fly two in a row because you, you didn't have time rest time in between. I bid a full schedule of that, which was 12 a month. So I worked 12 days a month flying on this killer thing. And so you were exhausted, and, and Milt showed up, and he well, literally no. swept you off your feet. Then later on, I got Las a chance. Vegas, there were some girls there that worked for this little Bonanza Airlines, and they knew some Air Force pilots in Phoenix and had some Christmas cookies, I believe it was. Yes, Christmas, yes, cookies. Christmas cookies. And I had the next flight. So they gave them to me to take, and you had two, two, two of your mates were Bob, Bob Sutton and Bob Apple. Right. And one of them, or both of them, I don't remember, met me at the airport for the cookies, and then sometime after that, I went, I got a date with one of them, I can't remember, and uh, we went out to dinner someplace and went back to their house afterwards, and Milt was the third roommate, and that's how we met that, then, that night. That's how we met. And a couple of weeks later... I think he was desperate for a day for a squadron party, so he <laughs> called me. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's a lot of good-looking guys out there. Of course I'll go on a date with this guy. <laughs> and you were already in the military. Yes. And so you've traveled around. I started out in the Air National Guard, in the Army National Guard in Las Vegas. So my very first duty station was my hometown because we had 90-millimeter anti-aircraft guns, and they needed to be loaded on the railroad to go down to Fort Bliss, where, which is going to be my first station. So actually, I was uh, active duty for one whole month in my hometown. And then we got shipped through here, stopped in Sandia to get physicals. We all had had physicals before, but the Army didn't trust it, I guess. So everybody got a physical again. Then we got back on the trucks. We had a convoy, and we went down to Fort Bliss, and that was our first duty station. And then did you switched over at some point? Yeah, then uh, it turned out... Uh, some of the people in my hometown had arranged for me to have a, an appointment to one of the academies, and I ended up with one right out of high school to Annapolis. And out of three or four guys that got those appointments, which were arranged by our high school, and I think primarily a gal named Ruth Stark, whose husband was a doctor, and a Dr. Mortimer, and I guess high school teachers, I ended up with one, and I was the only one that went down and took the exam out of the three or four of them, which was at the post office. So I had a whole day taking exams, and I didn't pass that. I passed a couple of the subjects, and that was just about the time they had started. If you could pass certain exams, you could get college credits. So I get a kick out of the fact that I passed two of the subjects, so I got six credit hours from Annapolis, and I've never even gone there. <laughs> <laughs> so then later on, since I didn't pass that, now it, also I was busy. I was learning lines from a play, and I was in the band and going to college. So I, I never did much preparation for it, just took the exam. So then uh, I went to college there for three years, and then my National Guard outfit got uh, federalized. I was 21 on the 2nd of August of 1950 and got promoted to warrant officer junior grade, and I became the administrative officer of the battery. And so then we got federalized on the 14th of August and became in the Army. So 
we worked in my hometown getting all that equipment loaded and then I had to do a lot of paperwork and then we got on the truck convoy our own trucks and went down to Fort Bliss so from then on then I had another appointment this time it was to West Point and while uh, November December while I was down to Fort Bliss I found out there was a rig that if I wanted to I could apply for a prep school for those academies they already had that kind of stuff going on so I applied for that, and then so I got transferred from my unit to a prep school at uh, Stewart Air Base, New York, which is only about 20 miles from West Point. And so I got sent to that in January, and they just prepped us on math and English and history and physical activity to get us ready for the physical exam and the mental exam. So that would be 1951. Oh, yeah, ninth, early 51. That's yeah. right. I did it January 51. So by the time that was over, I'd passed the, both the physical exam and the mental exam, and I had a fifth appointment from Congressman Montoya here in New Mexico. I found out that his principal, he, all of them have a, a principal and then four others that can take it up. So they hope the principal will pass the exam and get in, but if they don't, then they got a second down through the fifth. I was fifth. Found out that my principal passed, so I didn't have an appointment anymore. But I'd passed everything. So the policy was for that school at Stewart Air Force Base to encourage us to take leave and go to Washington and talk to our congressman and see if we couldn't get a different appointment. So I did that. Wow. I got dressed up in my military uniform, went to Washington, D.C., met with Mr. Montoya. He said, no, I don't have any, and all mine are full. But Senator Dennis Chavez may have an empty one. I understand his principal didn't pass. I'll call him. So he called up, talked to Dennis Chavez, and said, yeah, I got one. Well, I have this young man here that would like to have it. Okay, he can have it. So that's how I got into West Point. Well, congratulations. there on the 2nd of July of 1951. Graduated on 6th of June, 1955. So what were your responsibilities after graduation? Well, I became a second lieutenant. Now I switched from the Army to the Air Force. And so then I got sent to pilot training. And I did that down at uh, Mission Texas, which is near McAllen, Texas, near the river down there in the southern part. We go through a couple of phases. That's called uh, at basic and primary, primary training. So I flew a couple of prop job airplanes there and then went to Big Spring, Texas to start learning how to fly jets, which I flew the T-33, which the single seat of that T-33 was our first jet fighter for our country. So I got my wings in in October of, uh, I guess I was 56, and uh, got assigned to go to advanced training because you just learn how to fly to get your wings. Advanced training is learning how to shoot the gun, drop the bombs, and fire rockets, and all that kind of stuff, and fly formation, quite a bit of formation. So I went to Luke for that, and uh, driving my own car all by myself, I can still remember driving into the Phoenix Valley. I was opposite uh, Superstition Mountain when it was 95 uh, degrees in October. Yep. I've hiked that one. So hot. <laughs> So uh, shortly thereafter, I didn't have an air conditioner in my car, so I got to, went to wards a few months after that and put an air conditioner in my car. <laughs> That's the main thing I remember about that. Then the training was a, a different airplane and flying jets again. I happened to like that, and they needed instructors. And so when I graduated, they asked if anyone wanted to volunteer, and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd always like to teach. So I volunteered and got the assignment. So then I went home for leave, and when I got back, they stopped me at the gate and said, well, your orders to Nellis at Las Vegas, Nevada are canceled. You're to stay here. So then I became an instructor, and I taught there about nine, 
eight or nine years. So I was essentially an advanced fighter instructor for about eight or nine years, which I liked very much. And we need the instructors and we need those positive imprints that are being instilled in others. And were you ever deployed? No. I had people around me that would get picked up, but at the time I was teaching academics, running a simulator, and also teaching flying on the flight line. So I was doing about everything that's possible to do with the airplanes. And I could have been assigned because I was willing to go anywhere, anytime. Of course, I never told anybody that, but I would have. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and I got a few TDYs. uh, (laughs) One of them made me pretty angry. I was part of the Apollo program for the moon landing. So I got called to go to a medical facility in San Antonio where they checked all kinds of things to see what fighter pilots are made out of is what we were told. So I didn't do any flying there. They, we just did medical procedures. So checked our eyes, checked our reactions, put us in front of machines, uh, checked our bodily functions. One of the things I disliked the most was they would spin us in a dental chair and then they'd drop ice water in my ear and it would make your eyes oh. jitter and they'd, they'd time it and look at it. And actually that affected me even a few months later, would occasionally give me a little... Oh, he was uh, mad. Uh, I got, it was essentially torture because they were doing all kinds of things to you only all at once. What was the purpose? To just check, I guess, the things that fighter pilots were used to doing. Well, but he was flying jets, not well, a rocket. Well, with all, they, all those, body. they want a healthy body. Yeah, all those astronauts were flying jets. That's how they got their flying time. Oh, okay. I don't really know because it never told us too much. <clears throat> One time I said before, a big panel which had lights flashing to hit the switch, do that switch, and so we're doing that as fast as we could. Meantime, they had sensors stuck in my scalp, so they were recording brain waves, and, uh, and I spent a whole half a day doing, maybe twice, doing that. And a couple of other things which I didn't like very much. I think I did it for four weeks. So I was essentially, yeah, I was pretty angry. And really couldn't complain about it because supposedly I had volunteered to help him out on that program. So I didn't have any excuse. (laughs) (laughs) So I never complained to anybody. Oh, my goodness. And I knew it was for a good purpose, too. So And also I was uh, selected one of the three pilots to set up an F-104 program for the Germans. I guess we did that in 1962, 63. I got was placed in charge of setting up the academic program for the That's German program. In Germans in this country, not in Germany. Yeah. Okay. So they would go to, they came here and they'd go to a school for, even if they could speak English, they'd go to a school to get more English training than they'd come to us. They were already pilots, so they had their wings from Germany. And then we would teach them the airplane and how to, use it. And that airplane was a little more modern, had a radar in it and a nurse and navigation system in it. And so we would fly, practice atomic bomb deliveries and uh, shoot wow. the guns. And Do you remember what type of planes you were? Oh, yeah. We were flying. Uh, uh, I participated in flying F-84Fs, which was a slant-wing single-seat fighter. And then I helped establish the program for the F-104. It was a two-seater F-104F and F-104G models. Uh, we had some single-seaters, which we used most, and we'd use a t- two-seater to get them checked out on the airplane, give the pilots a couple of sorties and that, and then we'd fly formation. So as an instructor, I'd fly lead with a, usually a flight of four, and we'd go down the range and do what kind of training we were working on. And sometimes we'd go out in the area and chase each other like World War II fighting. So I thought that was really pretty neat. <laughs> Playing games. <laughs> well, they were, but they're very serious. Oh, and, serious, of course, serious. That's, yes, we were going of course, at 400 and 500 miles an hour. So 
we could have hit each Well, in fact, a couple of times, uh, one of my teachers, when we were a little before that in the F-100 program, got hit by his wingman and had to bail out. Then he was scared to death he was going to land. There's a couple of lakes on the Colorado River. He thought, sure, he's going to land in that, and he couldn't swim, so he kept... He tells us that he was afraid he was going to drown in those lakes. Then you come down sort of slow, and when you sort of regain your senses, he said, oh, I'm quite a ways away from those lakes, so I guess I'm okay. <laughs> so we landed on the ground and got rescued by our rescue people, and it was okay. So I want to ask you a question about the training. When hmm. you were in your fighter jet and training, did you have to practice bailout? We would have How a simulator you... in the simulator okay, so where we could simulator. pull the handles, and it would had enough power to make raises of four or five or six feet. And then we, we were trained to let loose of those handles, and then everything's automatic. Once you get out in a few seconds, you, we, there was a strap that would push us out of the seat, separ seat separator. And then a half a second or a second or so later, then the chute would be pulled automatically. And all that happened automatically. So if you were unconscious, it would still happen and would still open. But I never had to do that. But my friend that I was telling you about that also taught me later, that happened to him. He had to pull it. In fact, he said the airplane was pulling so much, and when you're up there, the plane can move in different ways. And then, like when you make a turn on a car, you feel a little G that wants to push you off. Well, we get up to four Gs, which is four times your body length, and it was probably more than that. And he couldn't grab the handles. Finally, one hand had to land on one of the handles. There, We had one on each side of the seat. And so he pulled that, and that's how he got out of the airplane, or he would have been killed. So we did live in a rather dangerous environment, but we all seemed to like it, so we never thought about that much. Yeah, my dad was a navigator in the Air Force. Well, in the, in the fighter airplane, he would have gone through the same training. And for a navigator, the risk is pretty high because you have your navigation board sitting yes. there. So if you eject... What do you do with that? There's nothing you can do except your knees hit it and you yeah, break your right. legs getting out. So that's why we had to be certain height and fighters because yeah. they would measure our seat distance from our rear oh, end to the canopy so okay. that if we fired out, our knees wouldn't hit it and get cut off. And they had that happen to a few guys that were real tall, and they had to eject, and it decapitated their knees. So then we couldn't be a fighter pilot unless we met that distance. And we got checked with that. They measured us. So the service is pretty exciting sometimes. <laughs> well, actually, I, I agree. And so what were some of your practice missions well, for a, an example would be um, we would meet an hour before takeoff time. I'd have uh, three students. We would fly a flight of four, so we'd take two off at a time, join up, and fly from Luke Air Force Base down to Gila Bend, which was about 60 or 70 miles. And we'd change frequencies, get a hold of the operator of the range, because the range, they were trying to keep us safe and not get killed while we are on the range. And so we would check in with them, we would fly over, and then we'd pitch out one at a time, so many seconds. We usually started out strafing. So oh, so you would practice your formation? Oh, yeah, we're okay. because that's part of four-ship flight. That's our war yeah. system. I, you know, I, I never, ever, ever have thought about that. I mean, we see... You living, see it all the time. Uh, yeah. In all the movies, yeah. you see them in formation. Right, but I've never thought about the fact that... All of this training, you know, the formations that you're actually, because, you know, we grew up seeing all of this happening because we live right by mm. Sandia Base. Yeah. So we, we're always seeing the fighter jets up yeah. there. So, you know, when you get used to things, seeing it, you you stop questioning yeah. it. And I think yeah. that that's something that we, we take for granted. And So yeah. I had a few classmates that just couldn't handle that, so they got wiped out of the training program. And what makes them not be able to handle the formation? Is well, it the G-force? Well, I think it's your personality and... 
how interested you are. And some guys just get so nervous that they just can't, you know, you got to be pretty calm. Sometimes we would overlap our wings, but most of the time we tried to stay about six inches apart, but and then we would stack it a little bit. So one airplane would be here and our wings would be underneath yeah. and it would be stacked. But if you moved it, oh, in fact, on the F-104, if we got too close, the high velocity of the air would suck you in and you would hit it. So we had a, I guess they found out out when they were building the airplanes and testing them that that would happen. We always briefed a safety procedure. So we would brief ejection or what if you lost electrical power or what if you lost the engine and what would you do? In a flight, we would help each other and if possible, come back with whoever had trouble. And that didn't happen very often, but it happened occasionally. Well, it happened to me once. In the F-100, it would have had a bad habit of uh, backfiring. So instead of the flame going out the rear, sometimes it would come out the front. Obviously, something's wrong when that happens. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Just a little mistake. I was, I was given an instrument training mission at that time, and that happened to me. So I had to declare an emergency, and I flew back uh, uh, to Luke Air Force Base and did an emergency pattern. What we do is we try to hit a high point where if we actually flamed out, we could circle down and make it. So we do that, and I did that, and I wanted to make sure I got to the runway, so I was a little bit higher and a little bit faster. And so when I got there and was ready to land, I was going to be very long, so I popped speed brakes to slow me down. All the airplanes had speed brakes. Put the flaps down, and so then I did land long. That airplane happened to have anti-skid brakes, one of the first places where you, you now you hear about them in cars, but we were to press on the brakes as hard as we could and it would cycle. Well, the temptation is to want to pump them yourself, but we we get a little training and say, no, you just keep pushing on them because it's automatic and it's all done for you. And they found out it stops quicker if you just keep the pressure on. So I get stopped. Then I'm getting close to the end of the runway and I hope I don't hit the barrier because all the jet fighter bases have a barrier where if you go off the runway, your wheels will pick up a web thing to stop you. So that you don't go into the next cornfield and, oh, yeah. oh, and cross the irrigation oh. ditch. And so I, then I got worried about that, but I got stopped and I got off the side and okay, no sweat. My student gets out of the airplane, goes back to the squadron and I start to unbuckle and I can't unbuckle. Then I'm shaking like a leaf. Calm, cool, made radio calls, but as soon as I got it stopped in there, and then I couldn't get out of the cockpit for 30 minutes. So all that, you know, is affecting you, even though outside you're pretty calm and cool. But when it was over, the chaplain even came up on us. Are you okay, Captain Herman? Yes, sir. I just can't get out of the cockpit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So then after that, then I was fine. From what my dad used to tell, because dad was in a lot of emergency situations. He was uh, Korean War and their their job was air defense. Mm -hmm. And when they did have an emergency situation, no more missions for that day and sometimes for two days. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't have another pilot and another navigator. They didn't send them back up because of... Yeah, because of the physical thing that right. takes everybody. Right. And even if you're really yes. pretty strong and sort of used to it, it still happens to you. So I want to ask you, you were in the military during a couple of different wars. Mm-hmm. So Korean War, Vietnam War. What was it like being in the military? Is it? Di- I know it's a job. I mean, we see the commercials, we see it as, okay, it's a job. But being in... The military during wartime, is that different? I think it's different, but most of the time the guys doing it are young and they really don't, are not so terribly worried about dying, I don't think, or we're risk takers. So there's an anxiety and and you know what you're training for. I was training to to fight. That's why I was shooting guns air to air and on the ground. We do an air to air mission. 
We'd have a T-33 that would tow a 1,000-foot steel cable with a 10-foot deep canvas cloth that was 20 feet long. And we would hit a switch, and that would unroll when we got down on the range. And the airplane would be like this, and the cable would hang the target down about here. Then we as fighters of fighter forward come in and shoot at that target, pull back up and shoot at that target while it's going. So we got air-to-air training, too. And, and all that's pretty exciting just by itself, learning how to do it <laughs> sure. without running into that. We called it the rag. You don't want to hit it because at the front of it, in order to keep it straight like that, was a steel pipe with a weight on it. So if you hit that, it'd probably tear your airplane apart and you'd either get killed or you'd have to bail out. Either way, it's pretty frightening. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my goodness, So we yes. were pretty careful with that, and got, some guys couldn't hack that. But in fighters, that was our primary business, and that's what we were training to do all the time. So I got pretty good at some of that stuff. Maybe not the best, but I was good at it. <laughs> or I wouldn't have and lived. It. Oh, yeah, I liked it. Well, it's a challenge. It's like playing a game, you know, playing a basketball game. You're out there to win and to come back alive. <laughs> in, in the Korean War, what, what was your position? What did you well, do? there I was in that National Guard unit, and I was the administrative officer. So I was a platoon leader. I was yeah. in charge of a, either a three or four squad, about nine men per squad, so say four times nine, about 40 people in a platoon. So I'd be the platoon leader for that. They were my responsibility. So your responsibility was obviously training them, and you're, the people you were training were pilots. Well, not no. not then. I was in the Army. See, that's okay, you were in the force. Army during. So we were primarily artillery men. And if we didn't have the guns, we would have been infantry. So that's like when you see in the movies a platoon leader. That's what I was at right there at a pretty young age. That's a little rare for a 21-year-old to be a platoon leader. That was my platoon. I was responsible for them. In the Army, we're taught, you know, i got to take care of my men so they get fed and that they're okay. And, and I'm the leader of the platoon. we got order to go do something. i got to, come on, men, let's go do it, which I like that too. <laughs> but I didn't do that very long, and then uh, I got changed and went to school. So then the war was over by the time I got mm-hmm. out of that, and... So then I was training for anything future that might happen. And uh, we had the Cuban crisis, and uh, that would be 63. At that time, I was working at the F-104 program, and they left me there to keep training because the, the Germans d- didn't get involved with that. That was our American problem, so we still had to keep the program going. That's just part of your job, every day's work. So what was the mindset during the Cuban Well, crisis? I think we're all interested in it and we're curious and when some of us we know would get picked up and get sent to go work just like for any job you know you might get called you might have to go do what you've been doing only for real so you're concerned i don't think anyone is scared but i think everyone's concerned we had training sorties at those bases uh, every day to keep your keep yourself a little bit current but we'd be preparing every day and getting ready to do it i had a ground job in vietnam so i didn't fly any airplanes and what was your ground job Turns out I was in headquarters, and I helped coordinate between the munitions to see that munitions that we needed at the different bases would be there. And then sometimes I'd get involved with maybe a, we had a goonie bird called Spooky, which they mounted a 50 caliber machine gun and a 7.6 millimeter machine gun in the side door. And also they had on the C-130, but C-47, C-47 type at a side door, so they'd fly like this and they'd shoot down here at the ground, and usually with tracers. So sometimes I'd, when I'd get off duty, I'd go back to my quarters and I'd sit on the roof and watch those spookies fly, and you'd see the tracers shooting at different targets in Vietnam. 
and then you see it in the movies. Most people don't know what that is, but that was a spooky flight. First yes, I served there big. in 68. A squatter platoon actually went through my via that I was living in at the time, so I saw a few Viet Cong. They shot at me, actually. Where were you But I was at? protected in my via at the time, so I never told even my family about that. No, you didn't. So I have a hat yeah. that was in my locker that's got bullet holes through it. After I had left it, they did shoot up in that area, but I wasn't there. So Obviously, I mean, you said earlier... You can't be scared, or you can't show that you're scared. You have to really calm yourself and get into it. Well, a most of us uh, control ourselves pretty well yeah. because we're trained. Right. That helps, I'm sure. That's a that's a lot of training to have to do in a situation like that. When so every once in a while there'd be a mortar attack on Saigon. In fact, we had one just about the time, I guess, of the Tet Offensive in '68. We had a mortar attack either with that or a little before. One of those mortars landed close to. We had a a lieutenant from the Marines as an attached officer in our headquarters, and he was in a barracks. And when that attack came at night, and they were instructed in that barracks to get, he was in the second floor, they were two-floor thing, to get down to the lower floor to make sure you could get out. So he jumped out of bed and went, and by the, when he got to the top of the stairs to go down a piece of shrapnel, went through the building and hit him in the leg. So he tumbled all the way down the stairs. <laughs> and it drew blood, of course. So he went to the didn't hurt him otherwise. He goes to the, I guess we call them medical dispensary or like a substation for medical aid. And so he gets signed up and he gets a purple heart for being wounded. Well, we were in a combat zone, so he got a purple heart for that. Wow. But also scared the hell out of him. <laughs> sure. And, I mean, you had to have seen more than, than or you heard things. Oh, yeah, I heard a lot of things. <laughs> well, we all have, we all have. We have so many people that don't talk about their stories when they come back. Do you know why well, that is? Mine, mine are mine. Well, because you, most of them you don't like. Most of them involved uh, people bleeding around you. So those kind of casualties, uh, we'll talk about it among ourselves some because we were trained that. And maybe, uh, for example, I was a stockbroker later on and I had a guy that had been in the Army and been in Pacific and he said he was in an attack where the Japanese were coming at him and said he, he shot and he shot and he shot. And the guy kept coming because the Japanese had a system in the infantry to wrap their bodies with linen. So a bullet could go through it, wouldn't, wouldn't kill you right away. You were going to die. But, and the guy kept coming. So the guy didn't die until he got about six feet away from him and fell at his feet. And that made him completely sick. He, he, he couldn't hardly move after that episode. So that happens around you, and sometimes that's to your buddy. Well, and then, you know, I never had it happen, but what are, what are you going to do if you're with a couple of guys and the guy right next to you gets shot in the head or shot in the body and dies right there? And that happens, but it's very rare. That doesn't happen to too many. Unless you're in a real high battle where they kill most of you, then, of course, it happens. But then you don't have anyone left to tell about it. So, So war is terrible, no doubt about it. I'm all for the presidents that try to keep us out of war. I don't really, I don't want to go to war either. Even now, I don't want us to go to war. But if we have to, sometimes some of those people that attack you have, you know, they're trained too, and they want to kill you. So you've got to, got to be prepared to stop that. And then, so your positive imprints have just, you, uh, do you keep in touch with some of those fellows? Who Not you... too much. Uh, most of them are family men, and I think when they go home, they go home and they, they don't necessarily try to forget it, but you do forget it. 
And then the ones that you instructed when you were an instructor, I mean, there's a lot of positive imprint there because you're yeah. you're obviously teaching them more than just a skill. You are teaching them well, I survival. Think I think you're teaching them attitude. Yeah. For example, um, I was an instructor pilot, and after I'd been there about a year teaching, I had a young man that I had taught, came back and was an instructor pilot and was my roommate. I'd been teaching maybe a year. Usually we went to the officer's club to eat supper together. He didn't show up that night. I can't even think of his name now. Roomed with him for about six months. Anyway, he didn't show up, and I find out at the officer's club he was killed that day on the runway. Oh, my gosh. Take off his wingman, hit him, and flip the airplane over and crashed right on the runway. So that was the last I saw him. So, oh, and then when I was in Korea, another young man that I had taught, flying F-100s, they were doing some training on the base at Osan, and there that was an atomic area, but we still had to fly the airplane to stay proficient. And they were making a, a practice let down to the field, and as they were pulling up, something happened to his F-100, and he rolled over and crashed on the runway. And I knew him fairly well. And that was when you were in the Army? No, I was in the Air Force. So you were in Korea? Yeah, but I was an occupation force later okay. in 1960. Okay. Yeah, the war was all over. But we were still prepared with bases all over the place in case Russia attacked us. So on that base, oh, we had... yes, forgot with. about that. He went to Korea because <laughs> just before then you proposed to me and it scared him so bad he had to... The proposal scared him so badly? <laughs> that didn't scare me. I just thought something might happen to me, so I said we ought to wait till I get back. <laughs> well, that's just the normal part of living for a military man. You know, we expect yeah. to get sent places. Yeah, so I, I lost a few friends that I knew yeah. as time went by. And that's hard to do. That's yeah. that's hard for anybody. Well, I, also I had a friend when I was at Big Springs Webb Air Force Base learning to fly the jets. And about the time I was graduating and getting my wings, I heard that a friend that I was a class of two ahead of me had also gone to Luke Air Force Base. He happened to own a light airplane, and I went out to the county field and flew with him a couple of times in his light airplane and he had an emergency at Luke, and his gear wouldn't come down. And so they told him to fly over a mountain near Luke and at 10,000 feet and eject because he'd probably get killed trying to get the airplane to land. He did. The canopy malfunctioned, did not fire, but his seat functioned and cut him in half. <gasps> so oh, my gosh. That happened about the time I was getting my wings. So I was asked if I still wanted to go to Luke. I said yes, Yeah. It bothered me, but I don't think it scared me. <laughs> wow. But, you know, that could have happened to me, too. Yeah, so you know about you know about those things, but I guess you got to just put them in the back and know they're there, but uh, you press on anyway. Wow. And I, all kinds of people do that. You know, guys in construction, they know they can get hurt in some big machinery, and they learn how to run it. They get a lot of confidence. They get good at it, so they get paid extra because, yeah, there's some more hazard to it. So I think it's similar to that. And you got to put it back aside. If you worried about it all the time, you'd never yeah, get anything done. So if you were to describe, or, or if you were to inspire right now with just two sentences, what inspiration could you provide for the listeners? Oh, I think life is very interesting, even when it's not very good. All kinds of things happen to people. And if you're doing things, I think that's what most people strive for. Are you really doing that? You're striving to do a good job of what you're doing. The guys in the military do the same thing. And then sometimes you'll have a terrible thing happen to you and you got to overcome it some way. Well, in the military, you're not 
we're just maybe a little better equipped to handle some of that, but we still got the same kind of problems. In a couple of sentences, I'd say anybody, man and woman that could, ought to, for their own learning and growing up, get in the service somewhere, serve one or two years and get out. It just is a place to grow up in, and you learn all kinds of stuff. And most of the time now they're learning computers and all kinds of techniques to where how to help them when they get out. So I think life is really working, doing things. If you got enough money, you don't have to actually work to make money, then work to help other people. And then I think you have a pretty busy and happy life, worthwhile life. And most of us drift to doing things we like to do, I hope you like what you're doing. You have little sections where, well, I'm not going to do that anymore, but try something different. Most of the time, those things work out if you work at it. You've got to work. So talk about some of the some of the things that are out of the military that you did, but they had to do with the military. But Well, another thing that struck me when I was going to college at New Mexico Highlands University was I took a lot of music, and we'd sit on the stairs there, and almost everybody there would talk about, oh, gosh, I'd like to get it job teaching music. But many of them would say, gee, you know, I would love to give a concert at Carnegie Hall. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I didn't even know what Carnegie Hall was. I'm probably the only one from Las Vegas that's ever given a program on Carnegie Hall. We got invited because I was part of the West Point Glee Club because I was interested in music to give a concert at Carnegie Hall. 54, I think, 1954. Did you have music or did you do a cappella? Oh, no, no, no. That was with a chorus. We might have had a piano accompaniment. And because Jackie Gleason was probably on a TV show. Yeah, that was a TV, TV show also. Jackie Gleason had one of the primary early TV shows. And why were you the on the Jackie Gleason show? Same way. The West Point Glee Club was just sort of famous yeah. and known, and they invited us, and military people and at West Point allowed us to do it, so we went. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you in the West Point Glee Club? All four years. I was able to get in it when I was a freshman. We were called plebes. What is a plebe? A plebe is just a plebe, P-L-E-B-E. And in Greek armies, that was the lowest ranking soldier, I guess, and they had to do everything. (laughs) So that just was the slang name. We're actually freshmen. So, and then the Ed Sullivan show you were on? We'd, we were on the Ed Sullivan show. Same thing. It was your glee yeah, club? Yeah, it was all four years it was the same thing. He invited the chorus to sing, and we sang a couple of numbers. And In the early days of TV, those were the prime shows. Yeah, and everybody they, wanted to get on the Ed Sullivan show. All of the main entertainers, which I suspect, I don't know, either performed for free or a very small fee. That's what I in suspect. In order to. Just to get on and it. heard by the American public outside of Carnegie Hall. And so early TV was incredible. Jackie Gleason's show had every name entertainer, like Ed Sullivan, every name entertainer in the world. Yeah, and I never thought to tell my folks about any of those. Usually we only had a few weeks' notice anyway, but I knew they couldn't attend, and I didn't even know if they had TV themselves. So I never told my folks about any of those. But I know some people saw me because I have a friend, and he tells me, I was there sitting with my friends, and I, look, there's Milt Herman from Las Vegas. (laughs) 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 That time when you were, um, you all had to get up in your dress whites to go to the parade, tell that story. That was for the inauguration parade for Eisenhower. Eisenhower. 
we were 2,400 strong at that time, so that I think they took half of us, maybe just a quarter of us. Anyway, I was in part of the group where we were part of the inauguration parade. So we took our whites, and we wore the top part while we were being transported by bus, and then we stopped as we were getting to New York or in New York City, got out and changed pants from the grays <laughs> to the whites, so, and then we stood up on the bus so we wouldn't so crease them. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. And hardly, I don't think hardly anybody even knew that or noticed it so that they oh, would, yes. would still be starched and looking sharp during right. the parade. Yeah. Oh, then we could sit down after the parade was over. <laughs> and on that same occasion, uh, I was in the Glee Club then, and we had a – there were eight parties for the Eisenhower inauguration, and all of them were held in big areas. I got to go to one of them where we, our glee club was there, and we sang a couple of songs when Eisenhower came in with his wife. We sang a song, Once in Love with Amy, because that was her slang name. Mamie. Mamie. Once in Love the, the with Mamie. The most popular song of the day was a song called Once in Love with Amy. Once in love with Amy. Yeah, we changed it to Mamie. Always in love with Amy. So, and but she and that Ike. Song using Mrs. Eisenhower's name, which was Mamie. Yeah, Mamie. Ah. So, when they came in, we sang that song, which we heard because we couldn't tell the great big auditorium. It was, like being, yeah. it was like being in a double gym, like being in the pit. That's how big the room was. So, when I came through there, well, then we sang that, that song plus a couple of others. So, you were chosen to go and sing, or first of all, in your whites, to go and be present there with, mm -hmm. at the inauguration. Did you feel anything, or was it just, just a little bit of excitement? So, but, it was uh, excitement. In a way, it was a, a pain in the butt, too. <laughs> <laughs> Because that, that's sort of hard work, and it's sort of hot, and then we got to actually do what we're doing all the time, which is march and keep order, and then we want to be perfect, and the rifles, and you know, so it, it's a chore, even though it's, in a way, sort of fun, but it was yeah, also a chore. So you're all trying to be in unison, no creased pants. I think yeah, that is the hilarious. Were, didn't, want them, didn't want them wrinkled. <laughs> Now, most of us thought that was really silly. What Who's they the, were going to march in a parade? Who's going to see us? Well, just the people that are around there. I'm uh, going to look for crinkled pants now. <laughs> we did walk in front of uh, Eisenhower in his reviewing stand, but I bet you he wouldn't even have noticed it either, even though he was a West Pointer. <laughs> so Michelle had been going through some of your things, and she found this album of when you were singing, and, and so you were in Vienna, or it was somewhere. So you were a civilian singer? As well I was as in, in the military? military, but I was singing in a civilian chorus. Okay, and how did you get to Vienna to because sing? Because this civilian put on, which I was part of, whenever they had a concert, usually I could be there because I was also in the military, so I might not have been there, but I was able to be there. So we gave concerts different places and started charging for it to make $150,000 to pay for airline tickets to go to Vienna. $150,000? That's what it cost at that time to send about 100 of us to Vienna. Wow. We had a lady that was a very good pianist that was that served with the chorus was our accompanist. Our director was named Hesh. Uh, they were just pretty good leaders and had enough uh, had enough people that knew German and maybe had lived in Germany that they made arrangements and got places for us to stay on the trip and got us on the airplane and got that us off. That had to have been a wonderful experience. It was. It was a great trip. Did you get to tour places in Vienna, or did you just go no. sing and then you had to oh, leave? Well, every place we went, we gave concerts or did a parade. 
In that course, we happened to have one member that was an actual Indian chief at one of the Indian tribes in Arizona, and he went with us, and he dressed in his Indian garb. So every place we went, he was usually in that Indian garb, so he was a hero every place we stopped. When we'd go eat somewhere, there's nothing else for us to do, so usually after we ate, we almost always gave a two- or three-song concert at wherever we were eating. Oh, so, that's And fun. so therefore, we knew the music really very well. And what types of songs did you sing? For that fiesta there in Vienna, we sang a German song, which I was told, because I didn't know German, that it was about uh, the memories of being back in your home country during war. Oh, and that's so it sad. turned out, uh, when that concert went on and we sang that last, the audience all started crying. I'm and we sure. could see it. Before you know it, all of us were crying because of the emotional impact. So we were a fantastic hit. We got written up in newspapers. We did make a record of some of those, yeah, that's I the think one of Michelle those songs. Yeah, which I think I have a copy of that record. I listened to it maybe once or twice when I first got it, but I don't think I've listened to it since. And that was in 1958 or 59, quite a while back. I probably couldn't sing any of those songs again, but I'm sure I'd remember. So I do remember the Schoenberg Palace. There's a famous palace in Austria. We got a tour of that, so we got to see one of the rooms, which was plated in gold. During the war, they had stripped all that and hid it in some mines and caves. But when we were there, they'd put it all back in that room again. Oh, that's so, cool. Uh, I've been in a gold-plated room. <laughs> uh, and no, I'm Michelle not has found this record. <laughs> So I, last time I was in town, we were my dad and I were, were sitting sitting on the couch just talking about Phoenix and Luke Air Force Base and all these uh, well, things. The, and well, these are the whites that we didn't want to wrinkle. <laughs> we had we had two or three pair of those, and they were starched really stiff. <laughs> so we would we would dress in these in the summertime for parade. So that's what this is. And so what Milt is holding parade. up is. A vinyl record with a picture on the front, and it's a picture of the Cadet Glee Club no, from West Point. No, this is a picture Point. of the cadets in formation at parade, but that's the way we were when we were in the Glee Club. Those of us that uh, happened to have enough rank to have belts, we had the belts on, and we were doing And this is how we paraded for Eisenhower's inaugural parade. He was actually telling me the story about how he was in this glee club, and they all got invited to Austria. And in fact, we had a whole pile of records no, that back, we were getting That's to back to up. Phoenix. Uh -huh. And I literally, he tells me the story, what he just told you about, how everyone in the audience started crying, and everyone singing started crying. And I happened to just look through a stack was... of albums, and I pull out the album from his glee club, and on the back of the album is the description of how they all went to Vienna, Austria, and the whole audience was in tears. Yeah, that was the big, one of the biggest auditoriums in Vienna, Austria. Yeah. So there must have been a couple of thousand people in that concert. Well, you have done some wonderful, amazing activities in your long, you know, wonderful life. I agree. Yes, yes. And uh, it, it has, this has really been thrilling. Are you going to sing us a song? No. No. <laughs> My favorite song, if I did do that, is God Bless America. Yeah. Now, when I was younger, I wouldn't do any of that kind of stuff. And then as I got older, I was more willing to sing solo. Yeah. I don't have a, a fantastic voice, but I have a good voice because I've been complimented very nice lots voice. of times that you have a nice voice. So. But I wasn't interested much in opera and that kind of stuff. So when I took voice lessons, it was mostly for the choruses. Did you ever sing or break out into song when you were like when you were in Saigon or any of the other places just no never had hum. an opportunity there well, well I mean just within yourself in, or uh, in Saigon I wanted to hear music so I happened to buy a set of speakers and a tape recorder 
And I played some tapes of some of these things when I was in Vietnam. So I listened to some of that, but I and maybe I sang along with them sometimes, yeah, but not very said, often. In that time, we sent tapes back and forth. I'm sure your mom and dad must have done that. And tapes. we did uh, audio tapes. We had letters, but we had audio tapes also. I would tape over his, and he would tape over mine, which is a shame. We just I still have a couple of those tapes stuck in a box someplace. <laughs> you would. Uh, well, actually, you know I what? Can. When you did Breakdown and Song, you know, have you ever gone to the movie theater here on Portland Air Force Base? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if they still do oh, it. Oh, I would do that. Back in the day. It used to be a tradition, so they would sing the Star Spangled Banner Before in the movie, the movie theater. right. Uh, I did it a couple of times when it really wasn't the tradition, but it was okay, but it just embarrassed, embarrassed Michelle. Uh, everyone had to stand up when it was played, and he was the only one in the theater with a booming voice singing the Star Spangled yeah. Banner, and we were crawling under the seats for yeah. horrified so embarrassment. At the end, every time, people clapped. Oh, say can you see, <laughs> find the dawn's early light, so I just burst it out and sang <laughs> Well, and that is such a wonderful place to end right here is May as well. with your absolute wonderful voice and your services and obviously your absolute wonderful positive imprints. Thank you again, Mill. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Music by Chris Knoll. ChrisKnoll.com. Lots of jazz and blues music from his website and Spotify. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Visit my website and sign up for email updates, yourpositiveimprint.com. Subscribe or follow this podcast by hitting that download, subscribe, or follow button now. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?